I've got some more things to say from this morning. But before I go there, if anyone's got any um, burning questions or not even not so burning questions, we can. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Any other? Elsa, on the mic. May may I may I ask that question? Or, Go for it. Because it's not really on what we did this morning. <laughs> I'm not going to have much of an answer for it you. Was it was a rabbit trail. It was a well, throw, throw it out. Throw it out. Even if we don't, what will probably more likely happen is we'll probably look at it. Um, I'll have to go look it up and give you a further answer later, but throw, throw the question out. Okay. Um, so when we went to Peter this yes. morning, I saw a note in my Bible about Isaiah 53. Yeah, so she kept I, reading. When I quoted First Peter, she kept re- I stopped at 21. She, I mean, I stopped at 23. She kept going and got to the, by his stripes we are healed. Right. And then her Bible was a study Bible, and it had a note that said... Uh, John MacArthur, he said, "Oh, then the stripe, the, by his stripes we are healed." In Isaiah 53, it's actually singular in uh-huh. Greek. It's by his stripe, which means he was struck. It's not stripes, as in because I've heard uh, the charismatic church preach that each stripe he got was some major disease and. And John mm. MacArthur said, no, this was like one strike. So I asked him about that. Well, if John MacArthur says it, who am I to? Um, <laughs> if the Mac machine said it, then... Oh, we had all sorts... Look, I went to his school, so we had all sorts of like names for him that were all meant lovingly. Big Mac, J-Mac, Mac machine, Mac attack. <laughs> the Saiyan. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll look into that and give some further feedback on that, but at the, I have nothing to say at the moment. <laughs> okay, any other? Any? I want to say something first. Uh, I was talking to Linda Brewer um, after the service, and I want to make one clear distinction that um, what we were talking about this morning in Luke 9 is about a mindset. And what Linda was pointing out, and she's absolutely right, the carrying out of the daily picking up of your cross, the daily denying self, the daily following Jesus, is totally dependent on grace and the Spirit's work, totally dependent on, on God enabling us. And what I was trying to deal with this morning is fundamentally just the, the mental shift of, you understand that's what we're called to do, right? The type of approach. But the actually doing of it is all grace and all the spirit and and it's also a community project and it's the type of thing where some days you're not going to want to pick up your cross and the Lord's going to have to convict you and people are going to have to come around and encourage you and then okay I'll pick up my cross like that's going to be the Christian life Um, and so I wanted to make sure that those notes are rung lest it sounds like you by your gumption and by your willpower and by your stiff upper lip you go do these things Um, whereas I, I see Luke 9 being more of hey are you willing to do these things? Will you? And, and the assumption being, if I give you the strength and the grace, will you do these things? Will you try? And the answer is, should be, ought to be, yes, I'll try. If you give me the strength, I'll try. But that's an excellent clarification, and uh, I wouldn't want anyone to be confused on that point. Um, okay, any, any thoughts on that? or any, If you've got no questions after this morning's message, something's wrong. Okay, no, 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 no. You've got to wait for the microphone, though. 
You got to play by the rules. Oh, she's clearing her throat. Okay. Okay, I have questions about the kingdom of God. Yes. John the Baptist said the kingdom of God is at hand in Matthew 3, 2. I was doing a little bit of what Elsa was doing and looking up other passages about the kingdom of God, but I was paying attention to. Thank you for the wonderful sermon and being faithful in your preaching. And Daniel's prayer was great, too. Oh, yeah. And then John 18, 36, if my kingdom were of this world... Uh, these are just other yeah. scriptures. Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, Power. peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Okay. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Then comes the end when He delivers capital H the kingdom of God to God the Father. When He capital H puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. In Hebrews twelve twenty eight. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot, cannot be, be shaken. shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So just if you could comment on the kingdom of God. In, uh, are we living in it now, it, partially, fully? And <laughs> Oh, Renee, you have asked is a Is that too much? Huge, oh, no, no, we'll see what we can do. But let me, admit, let me acknowledge up front, that is a huge question, and I'll try to chip away at it some, um, and then Zeb can set us straight. We do. Um, <laughs> Uh, but let me, first one observation, just so you know, the entire New Testament was written in capitalized Greek letters. Um, so when your English Bibles do capitalization stuff, it's the translator's best guess. So all it's indicating is they think this is referring to a divine person. They're probably right. But the, the, Greek, the Greek New Testament was all capital letters with no spaces. So not only was it all caps, but you had to figure out when a word ended and when a word began, because that's how it was written. Um, so... That's why they don't have quotation marks and stuff like that as well. So um, all those things are translators' best. I mean, and, and they're not guesses, but they're best reading of of when. And there's some passages where it's hard to track who the he is. You go to you go to uh, Ephesians one, three to fourteen. You try tracking the pronouns there. It is tricky. Um, so anyway, so that's. Okay, so the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Okay. Brief kingdom survey. Okay. Um, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? I think that's probably, for me, the most helpful way of thinking about it. Because what Jesus is saying is it's growing, and it takes on different forms. There's a final form where its branches spread out, and all the birds of the field can nest in this mustard seed, and there's a period where it's not. The Old Testament clearly and in many places and in many times predicted a physical, earthly, messianic kingdom. Go to Psalm 2. We looked at it last week. Were you, were you here last week, Renee? No, I did not. No, no. So check out last week because we dealt with it because that was, I'll, I'll sort of rehash what we looked at last week. Go to Psalm 2. Um, last week we looked at the fact that what Peter says, you are God's Christ, is, is, seems to be a unique title, God's Christ. But if you swap God for the Lord, the Lord's Christ, there are some references to that in the Old Testament. Um, but every single one of them, the first is in uh, 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's prayer, the Lord will give strength to his king and um, glory to his anointed. They're always linked to the throne. So when you're talking about the Lord's Messiah, or the Lord's, because Christ, Messiah, and um, Christ, Messiah, and anointed are... Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew, and anointed is English for the same thing. They're interchangeable. Um, They're just different languages for the same thing. So Christ 
is from the Greek word Christos. It's not even a translation. They just brought the word over. Uh, Messiah is from the Hebrew word um, Christos. Their Greek equivalent of an I would be an iota. So yes, it would be ki, um, rho, iota, sigma, um, tau, omicron, sumo, sigma. No, Hebrew is where they didn't have vowels. I, I think you're, you're thinking of Hebrew. The Hebrew Masoretic text, all the vowels are assumed, and then the Masoretes came along in the 6th century and added in vowels. So Greek had vowels in the text. The Hebrew Old Testament text originally had no vowels. You were supposed to know what the vowels were. You can sort of do it with English. Take an English paragraph, take all the vowels out. You can probably figure it out. So um, Greek was all caps, no spaces. Hebrew was no vowels. Um, the Old Testament. So, um, so Christ, Messiah, and anointed are all the same thing. And so in Psalm 2, we looked at what, what, would we, what does Peter likely mean when he talks about the Lord's or God's Christ? I think he means Psalm 2. Okay? Okay. Renee, you're with me? Okay, so Psalm 2, let's just read it. A couple of structural notes. In every strophe or paragraph, which lasts three verses each, um, in every one of them, the Lord appears and some other third party. The name changes. This, this, this psalm shows us definitively that the king is the Christ, is the son. Those three threads of kingship, sonship, and messiahship merge in Psalm 2. But look at what it describes. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord. When you see Lord in all caps, it's the divine name. It's Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton or whatever you want to, uh, whatever you want to call that. But against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Messiah, Messiah, or against his Christ, depending on which language you want to speak. The Lord's Christ. God's Messiah. That, that's the connection I made right there. Because there's not, even in the Old Testament, many passages where you find the Lord's Messiah. It's in 1 Samuel 2. David refers to himself as the Lord's anointed in um, 2 Samuel 23, and it's here, not many other places. So even that's localized, and it's always centered around the throne. It's always centered around kingship. Okay, so against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. See, God does have a sense of humor. It's just not ha-ha funny. Um, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the Lord's anointed, now it's the Lord's king, my king, my anointed, my king. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. You've got the Lord's, my Messiah, my king, now my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Now, I, I've, I've heard songs written about, you know, ask of me, and they put it with missions, and we're going to go out to the ends of the earth. That's not the context. What does Jesus do when he gets the earth? You will dash them, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is referring to judgment. When the Son comes to his throne, 
he will ask of his father. His father will give him the title deed to the planet Earth, as it were. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, a couple thoughts on Psalm 2, which you can go back in our sermon archive. There is a message on Psalm 2. Clearly, the description of this rule supersedes and exceeds anything in Israel's history. David and Solomon are probably the high points of, of, of size of the kingdom and rule. They never had anything like this. So either this is totally hyperbolic language, or it is yet to come. Go to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to suggest this is literal, that this type of rule on earth by the Messiah will happen. At some point, the kingdom will look like that. Now, I will get to your question, are we in it now? I just want to establish there's Old Testament prophecy predicting a rule that has not occurred yet that will be on earth where the, where the Messiah is ruling from his father's throne in Jerusalem and all the rulers of the earth are told, you better, you better fall in line. You better kiss the ring. You better bow the knee or it's going to get broken. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. Um, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, that's the first connection to Revelate to um, Psalm two. Now go to Revelation nineteen. Okay, I'm just looking at my notes in my Bible. Revelation nineteen. Bless you. Look at verse. Pick it up in verse eleven. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now this is the second coming of the Lord. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one understands but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the connection to Psalm 2. The book of Revelation, even when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, the predictions of Psalm 2 are still future. When Jesus returns, you can still say he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is what we call the messianic kingdom. That Jesus, upon returning to earth, will do battle with the sword of his... It's not going to be much of a battle. We've talked about this when we were going through Zechariah. You know, it wouldn't make a good movie because there'd be all this build-up, and there'd be all this build-up, and all the nations, and all, them, all the people on earth, and all the armies are surrounding Jerusalem, and, show, and then here he comes, and it's going to be this big fight, and he speaks, and it's over. It's the biggest anticlimax in that sense, but it's just the demonstration of absolute power. He just speaks the sword of his mouth, and his enemies disintegrate. I mean, if you've ever seen, um, if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, that one guy when they open the ark and kind of 
that's as far as I can tell, t- Spielberg, who's Jewish, took that from Zechariah 14, the description of the plague where their eyes would rot in their sockets and the, their flesh would melt in their bones. As far as I can tell, that's Spielberg's um, um, impetus or his, what he's drawing from when he guessed at that. You know? um, so Jesus comes back and he, he fights what we call the Battle of Armageddon. He fights his enemies in Revelation 19. And then he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Um, so go to now Zechariah 14. I just want to make it, here's the argument. Psalm 2 makes a prediction. The Messiah, the Son, the King will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Are we meant to take that literally? Revelation 19 surely makes it look like we are. Okay? So we go to Revelation 19. Jesus is returning on this white horse. He's going to battle. And even there it said he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So even in Revelation 19, Psalm 2 is still yet future, the fulfillment. So now Zechariah, where we spent a year and a half in, um, Zechariah 14 looks at that battle, okay? Um, And we'll just pick it up in verse 2. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile. The rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. I'm suggesting to you that Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19 are describing the same event. We're just looking at it from Zechariah's point of view. Same event. Okay? Um, The Lord will go out to fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand in the Mount of Olives that lies beyond Jerusalem on the east. By the way, where did Jesus ascend to heaven from? Mount of Olives. What did the angel say when he ascended? In the same way you saw him depart, in like manner he will return. What is the touchdown point for the resurrected and returning Lord? Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives shall split in two. Okay, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. There's their kingdom, Renee. There's your kingdom in Zechariah 14, 9. And then they speak of the plague that will destroy the enemies. I want to jump ahead to verse 16. So what happens after that great conflagration? What happens after the Lord returns and there's a great battle and his enemies melt? Verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations shall come against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year and worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of earth do not go up to Jerusalem and worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. And he goes on to describe it. What's described here in Zechariah 14 is an earthly kingdom centered around the geography of Israel and Jerusalem, where the Messiah is reigning, after the Battle of Armageddon. This is why when people talk about eschatology, we are pre-millennial. We're living in the time period prior to this kingdom. This kingdom hasn't happened. And some people want to say, well, this kingdom in Zechariah 14 is spiritually happening, and, and Christ is ruling over his enemies. I, I don't think that works terribly well. You, we did some messages when we got ready to start the final section of Zechariah dealing with that, and I'd point you there. So... That's, I think, in short, the final form of the kingdom. The final form of the kingdom will be on earth, Messiah ruling from David's throne in Jerusalem, all the nations of the world coming up year after year, doing homage or getting their knees broken, for lack of a better expression. What? 
Okay. Well, every knee will bow. Some just may be broken. That's all. That's their whole rod of iron dashing them type of thing. Okay. So that's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just getting warmed up. Um, so that's its final stage, as, as I would understand it. No, 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 for a thousand years. Then there's a new heavens and a new earth. And we don't know much about what takes place there. We get little tiny glimpses. The former things will not be remembered. Every tear will be wiped away. God will be with his people. There'll be no sun. There'll be no temple. For the God and the Lamb are its temple. That's the final chapter of Revelation. And there seem to still be nations. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, but it's really hard to speculate much about the eternal state. Um, but there'll be a new creation. And, and Peter says the present heavens and earth being reserved for fire, and they'll rush away and pass away the roar. Um, but before all that, there's, there's the return of the Lord, and there's a great battle. After the great battle, it's the institution of a messianic kingdom that'll last a thousand years, um, where Christ is ruling. I mean, it's just think about it. God will have a street address. Jesus will be ruling from a geographic location. Uh, I don't mean to sound um, trite or irrespective disrespectful. But I mean, it's just crazy that the risen Son of God will be on a particular location on earth. And um, so that's the final stage, as I'd say, to the kingdom. Now, there's absolutely, especially in Paul, a now or an already not yet tension in, in Paul. So there is a sense, there's a very, there's a sense. Okay. Zeb and now JP, he's heard those, are laughing. There's a sense in which the kingdom is present, just a sense. Um, so that Paul can say, the, the kingdom of God, where there is righteousness and thanksgiving, there, there's an element of the kingdom. Here's the best analogy I can give you. We, the kingdom has an advanced party that forms sort of like um, embassies. And even us gathering this morning, it's like an embassy of the king. And here, we try to live out his kingdom. We try to, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom, thy will be done, thy kingdom. You've got to stop with the Lord's Prayer and, and look at every little clause, right? And so we want to live lives like we will live in the kingdom. We want to show this new principle. We want to model to the surrounding world this new principle of life, this new ethic of interacting. We want to live differently. Like, like just like, you know, when foreigners move to an area, then they look and act and dress different. Well, that's weird, you know, right? No, I mean, it's just, it's not any particular type of foreigners. I mean, if I went and lived in the Middle East, they'd think I was weird, you know? It's just foreigners do that, right? That's weird. They dress different. They have different customs. They talk differently. We ought to be those emissaries, those ambassadors who are living like a different kingdom um, in the world. And so there's a sense in which God's kingdom is present. So that Colossians 1, um, what's it, 13 or 16, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Been delivered into the kingdom. And there's a sense in which Christ is ruling and he is king. And, and, and yet there's another sense in which he's not ruling. So that, that's even a better question. Is Christ ruling or not ruling right now? Because according to Psalm 110, quoted three times in the New Testament, he's awaiting his enemies to be made a footstool. Yet Christ is reigning, and the early church spoke with a profound irony of Christ even reigning from the cross. So is Christ reigning? Yes, but not like he will. Is the kingdom here in a sense, but not like it will? There's an already but not yet tension. So there are elements of the kingdom present. Um, like an advance party, like that mustard seed that's growing, it is not in its final stage or form by a long shot. Okay, that is my medium-sized answer. Now, questions off that. Can you hear me? 
Okay. My first comment is I'm concerned for myself, for all of us, that we Thank you. That's touching. don't live um, realizing the power of um, living and being in the kingdom of God, which that aspect which is mm. already complete and what God has done. Um, and secondly, you know that Sunday you did a sermon that the rope went all the way around the world into infinity and you had a little bit of red tape on the last two inches? That was a great story, and I've shared that with a lot of people, that this is our life, this two inches of red on this forever yeah. rope. I want to formally and publicly on the tape give credit to Francis Chan for that yes. illustration. Yes. Totally ripped him off. <laughs> totally. He did that at chapel at the Master's College, but it was so memorable. I, th I hope yes. in that message I gave him credit, too, but it was such a memorable illustration. You did illustration. give him credit. Yes, okay. I just Good. couldn't remember his Good. name. Thank and you so for I've... crediting me with giving him credit, so <laughs> appreciate that. And so I've shared that with a lot of people, so, yeah. you know, just to help, because it is a good uh, object lesson on how short this life is and yeah. how important it is to live where all that rope is. And so how much of that rope, then, is the millennial kingdom? And yeah, not much. Yeah. And I hear so many people talking about the millennial reign, but not the final right. infinity reign. And well, so what is that difference? The difference the is two? information. The Bible has a lot to say about the millennial reign, especially from the Old Testament. And we have very little information about what happens after that. So even though all of eternity gets taken up with what we call the eternal state, mm -hmm. the amount of text we have on that and information we have on that is small. And so, lest we get fanciful and start writing books of fiction, which is not a good idea, um, we just go, I mean, no, I mean, there's, I mean, Zeb, can you think of a chapter other than Revelation 21 that deals with the eternal state? The new heavens and the new earth? Not explicitly. Isaiah, the... Yeah, not explicitly. Yeah. The... Um, <laughs> There's several that are like there's several Old Testament passages that are somewhat ambiguous whether they are referring to the eternal state or to the millennial kingdom because yeah, yeah. there's clearly some like the the during the kingdom there will there will be death we know yeah, that yep um, but we don't really know if there's going to be death in the eternal state so there's like all these things that kind of might be referring to the eternal state they might right. be referring to the millennium yeah. so yeah it's it's there's, there's it's vague. not a ton of information whereas i could point you to hundreds literally hundreds of passages we're going to revelation 21 hundreds of passages dealing with the with the messianic kingdom it was the hope of the old testament i mean it was the hope of israel and it's why they're so obsessed with it um so yeah in revelation 21 after the end of 20, where the final great white throne... Okay, go back to 20. You'll see the thousand years, and then you'll see the king. So here's the order. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him in the pit, shut it, sealed it over, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And I saw... Th okay, so there's your thousand years, and Satan bound. But then he gets released, um, and he gets defeated a second time. Um, verse 7, and then 
when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And he gets defeating his castle in the lake of fire. This is the second death, great way throne judgment. Okay, that's how... So, so you have this battle where Jesus defeats all the nations at the beginning of the kingdom, and the kingdom ends with a revolt. Um, then... 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was, so there's no sea now. New heavens and earth, no sea. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And there shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jump down to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's significant because biblically the, the notion of temple is where man and God meet and sin get dealt with. So um, the tabernacle is where Moses would come and meet with God and they'd offer sacrifices. Man and God meet, sin gets dealt with it. Then they establish the, the temple that David, um, well, David doesn't establish, Solomon builds. And what happens? Man and God meet and sin is dealt with. And then Jesus says, I'm the temple. Why? Because Jesus is where man and God meet and sin gets dealt with. And then the church is temple in First Corinthians, both corporately and individually. Why? Because as we bring the message of the gospel to the world, we are where man and God's meet and sin is dealt with. There's no temple in the new heavens and the earth. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. All of creation, in that sense, is temple. All of creation is at peace with God. There is no special place you go to be at peace with God. I saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine by, for the glory of God gives it. We're back to pre-creation. Remember, people were like, well, where was the light in Genesis 1 before he made the sun? Same thing here. And it's intentionally going back behind the creation week. Whatever that light source was, whether it was just light coming from God or just light, here it is again. No sun, no stars, light. There's not a whole lot more information we got. There are nations, you keep reading. By its light, the nations walk. So apparently in the new heavens and the new earth, there's nations. I don't know. Surprising, I wouldn't have guessed that. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. So there's stuff going on. It's not like we'll be sitting on clouds playing our harps. There's apparently work to be done. I don't have a whole lot more information. We could read 22 as well. I don't know much, but, but that's like the limit of our knowledge of the, of the millennial kingdom. I mean, of, of, the, of the eternal state. However, what we know about the kingdom, go to Acts chapter 1. Is, is, is rife. We have tremendous amounts of information on that. And you've got to understand, one of the things that I, that I find, i got some good brothers and sisters who don't believe there will ever be a physical kingdom on earth with Messiah reign. Love them. All millennialists. Um, good, good guys. People love the Lord. But one of the things that I find so, and this isn't why you, you don't hold to a position because you like it, after you've studied it and you hold to a position, then you can point out here, something I find very satisfying about the, uh, the, the notion that Christ will reign is that all of this buildup in the Old Testament, and you think about how many pages are dedicated to Israel as a nation and the land, what they're going to do and how they're going to honor God, and how they're going to basically, here's this well-oiled machine of an entire nation. For how long could anyone argue Israel faithfully did that? Maybe 
maybe the reign of David and maybe part of the reign of Solomon, right? I'll give you Saul too, because even though there's three kings, 50 years, 60, 70 years, maybe tops, less than 100 years, tops. For less than 100 years, Israel might have sort of functioned the way it was supposed to. The second Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over, the kingdom gets split in half, and now we know we're off the rails because the law knows nothing of a northern and southern kingdom. Like We're, we're not where we should be, right? Um, and so there's all this text about what you're going to do and how God's going to bless them and how they're going to defeat their enemies and how everything's going to be wonderful. And within three kings, there's civil war and the nation splits in half. And they just stay like that until the ten northern tribes just sort of get gobbled up by Shalmaneser the fifth, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes the southern tribes, and then some stragglers return. It is such an anticlimax that the thought that Christ will come and and things will play out like they were supposed to, and that we will get to see this this covenant and this kingdom functioning the way all those passages in Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. Is, is satisfying to me. It's not why I hold the position, but holding the position, I find that satisfying in a way that, you know, all of that stuff about Israel and the land, that that's all done. And it never really worked in the first place. And now we're just doing something else. It's to me such an anticlimax. But that's just me. Acts 1. Um, so, in the first book, O Theophilus, verse 1, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus spent 40 days further teaching the disciples and the topic that Luke summarizes of what he's talking about is the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, what? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They just spent 40 days with Jesus, where the topic of the teaching is the kingdom of God, and they came out saying, okay, is it now? Now is it time for Israel to have the kingdom? So either Peter's adult, and there certainly are times where he's adult. That's certainly a legitimate possibility. And he totally misunderstood Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Or this Jewish fisherman, after sitting under Jesus for 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God, is still expecting an earthly, physical kingdom centered around the nation of Israel. Um, And Jesus doesn't say to him, silly Peter, the kingdom is spiritual. It's right now. What Jesus says to him is, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive And he goes, don't worry about that. In other words, don't, don't worry about that, Peter. So Peter is expecting a kingdom, even as there's a sense in which we've got one foot in it right now. It's the, it's the not yet or almost not yet, now not yet tension. There's a sense in which the kingdom's present. Um, and in fact, the miracles and the healings in, in the first instance are an outflowing of that power, showing that this kingdom principle is here, that just as there will, death will be restrained. Isaiah says that in the kingdom, someone who dies at 100 years will be considered cursed by God and an infant. 
There will be death in the kingdom, but all, but it's so, all, the curse is so restrained that the lion lays down with the lamb and the, the child can stick his hand in, in the hole of the snake and not be bitten. And someone who dies at a hundred, it'll be like they're a baby, like, Tra- like that type of tragedy. It was so senseless, you know. Um, so it's not the effects of the fall erased, but tremendously, tremendously restrained. Um, and, and the final point that shows is when you give us the perfect king and the perfect government, and by the way, the perfect government isn't a democracy. The perfect government is a king ruling from a throne. Um, now, you need the perfect king for that to work right admittedly, but, but it's not a democracy. We don't vote God in. He doesn't come up for re-election. Um, but we get the perfect government, perfect climate, perfect environment. No more disease, and, and, and the, the environment's not trying to kill us anymore. The environment's not hostile to us. Prolongated life, presumably blessing and economic prosperity. I mean, you read about the kingdom, and even then, even then, we try to fight God and revolt. <laughs> if that's not the final capstone on, yeah, we need a savior because we ain't right. We ain't right in the head. That's it. You can't blame your upbringing. You can't blame education. You can't blame economics. You can't blame the environment. You can't blame your genetics. You can't blame... Everything's perfect. It's back to like the Garden of Eden almost. And the nations of the world gather up and try to fight God a second time. So... Anyway, we got four minutes left. Any way back there with Alex in the back? Oh no 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 microphone! He's trying to cheat. You said that there was more stuff that you wanted to say about the sermon. <laughs> did, did you want to? Speak um, we got five minutes, so um, I don't know how much more stuff we're going to say about the sermon. Yeah, um, the biggest part was I did want to make the point that Linda made about. Um, about the actual doing of that. We didn't really cover. How do you do this? That'd be a whole separate thing. How, how do you day by day deny yourself? How do you day by day pick up your cross? I, I was mainly trying to, this morning, take it on the fact that, but, that you got to wrap your head around the fact that Jesus calls you to do that, and that's got to be to some level okay. And if we come to him and say, Lord, I have no idea how I'm going to do that, but if you enable me, I will. That, that's just the place you need to get to. That, if we can get there, you, you'll be okay. The, pr- the problem for us is I don't want to do it, so I won't do it. The problem is no one's ever told us that that's what Christian. I mean, we live in a country where you can have your best life now. No, you can be promised to have your best life now. And, and you can be promised that you're going to have a nice, smooth life. It gets back to that illustration about the soldiers on... Um, furlough, right? They, hey, everyone around me is having a nice time, relaxed, and you get called to the front line. Like, what on earth is this? I don't want to go to the front line. People are going to shoot at me. Um, and we forget that we're on call. We forget that at any moment our king has the right to call us into combat and duty. And just because he's let a lot of his people in this part of the world for a long time avoid martyrdom and avoid those things, is no guarantee or right to us that we get to do the same thing. Um, that was one part. The other part I wanted to make, and, and I'll take five minutes to do this when we'll be done, is to tie how this works into faith, because I know that when you read these things that Jesus says, we can wrestle with, okay, that sounds an awful lot like work. That's You're saying if I don't pick up my cross and follow you, I'm going to die and perish. That sounds... How, how does that square 
with what was said in chapter 8 about the seed. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. I thought it's hearing with faith. What's about this cross-following, self-denying, you must or you'll lose your life stuff? And I think that's kind of the tension we wrestle with. And for those people that want to say, no, 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 what Jesus says here in Luke 9 is, is second-tier Christianity. There's saved people, and then you become disciples. Is to try to make sense of the Bible's equally emphatic claims that you hear the word, and you believe, and you are saved. And Jesus' saying is over here. So here's, here's what I want to try to make the connection. In all three illustrations, everyone wants the same thing. They want to save their life. They want real value, wealth, profit, and they want to avoid shame, right? You with me? The question is, what do you get? This is what comes down to faith, believe. Like, like the story of the guy who cut his arm off, you're only going to do that. Everything in you. I'm pretty sure I couldn't pay any of you enough money to do that yourself with a pocket knife, right? I, I certainly wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. Everything in me, you preserve my arm. I'd have to be convinced it was life or death. I'd have to be convinced that everything hung in the balance before I'd take a pocket knife and stick it in, right? So when Jesus says it's life or death, do you believe him? When Jesus says true value is in preserving your soul and this world is passing away, do you believe him? Um... I think when we run around chasing after the things of this world, we really believe the lie that, no, this world's stuff is going to satisfy us. No, this world's stuff is valuable. No, this world's stuff is real and lasting. And we've believed a lie. Um, likewise, if we really believed Christ was returning and there was a judgment and he may be ashamed of us, because of the way I think we'd live differently. We forget that. We think we can have it both. I can, I can avoid shame now, and I can avoid shame then. I can avoid death now and avoid death then. I can have wealth now and wealth then. This is why you've got to look that all of Jesus' arguments only work if it truly is either or. All of them only work, and, and that's where I think it comes down to faith. Do you believe what he's saying? Because he's giving you reasons why you would do these things, why you would follow after him, why you would follow the pattern he set. And he's saying the reason you got to do this, the reason you got to pick up your cross and deny yourself is if you try to save your life and you try to resist that type of suffering, you're going to die. And if you get distracted and think this stuff's really valuable and you don't worry about what's truly valuable, you're going to die. And if, if you are more worried about the shame that man can heap on you than the shame I will heap on you, you're going to die. That's why. And, and so it ultimately comes down to what do we believe? Do we believe what he says? Or do we believe the subtle lie that is so pernicious that you can have it both? You can be a follower of Jesus and have your best life now. And that's what's so infuriating about teachers and ministries that want to tell you you can have it both because I don't think anyone says, I want to perish. It's okay, I'll perish, I'll take death later, just give me the life now. I think just what everyone who's doing that thinks they can have both. Right? I, I don't think there's many people who are saying, fooey on life, fooey on wealth and, pro and value, fooey on shame. The assumption in here is everyone's trying to try and wants the same thing. It's who do you believe on where do you have to go to get it? You know? Um, we're fighting over the monopoly money <laughs> when there's like gold bars on the next table. Um, 
We just don't believe they're gold bars and we don't believe it's monopoly money. Or we wouldn't fight over it like we do. Anyway, time is up. But that's, thank you, Alex. That was the other point. I want to connect this in to see how faith ties in. What do we, I mean, the test is what do we believe? If you believe your arm's caught and you're going to die, you're going to take out your knife, you're going to start cutting it off. But you're not going to do it unless you believe that. It took the guy five days to become convinced no one's coming, no one's rescuing me, I'm going to die. And then he saved his life by attacking his life, right? Okay, you are dismissed.